anti-vaccination campaigns roil the world and today commemorates the Russian army's liberation of a Nazi death camp during World War II. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, January 27, 2022. President Joe Biden strongly affirmed today that he will nominate the first black woman to the United States Supreme Court, declaring such historic representation is long overdue and promising to announce a choice by the end of the month. He made the announcement in an appearance in the Roosevelt Room of the White House with Justice Breyer. Today is his day. But let me say a few words about the critically important work of selecting his successor. Choosing someone to sit in the Supreme Court, I believe, is one of the most serious constitutional responsibility a president has. Our process is going to be rigorous. I will select a nominee worthy of Justice Breyer's legacy of excellence and decency. While I've been studying candidates' backgrounds and writings, I've made no decision except one. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. I made that commitment during the campaign for president, and I will keep that commitment. Biden's choice will be historic. No black woman has ever been, uh, has ever served on the high court. The decision is coming at a critical time. But the court's sixth reconservative majority is destined to remain intact. Breyer, a liberal, became more conservative over time as he tried without much luck to bring the court's divided justice, justices together, was there as well. This is a complicated country. There are more than 330 million people. And my mother used to say it's every race, it's every religion, and she would emphasize this, and it's every point of view possible. And uh, it's a kind of miracle when you sit there and see all those people in front of you, 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 people that are so different in what they think. And yet they've decided to help solve their major differences under law. And when the students get too cynical, I say, "Go, go look at what happens in countries that don't do that. Although Biden is yet to make a choice, he's met with at least one top nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, 51, a former Breyer clerk who worked at the U.S. Sentencing Commission and has been a federal trial court judge since 2013 in the District of Columbia. Early discussions about a successor are also focusing on U.S. District Judge J. Michelle Childs and California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger. That's according to sources quoted widely in the news. Meanwhile, across the pond in London... British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is bracing for the results of an investigation into allegations of lockdown breaching parties. The findings could help him end weeks of scandal and discontent or bring his time in office to an abrupt close. The claims have caused public anger, led some conservative lawmakers to call for Johnson's resignation, triggered intense infighting inside the government party and sparked a criminal investigation into the prime minister and his staff by London's Metropolitan Police. Yesterday, he fended off calls to resign from Labour Party leader Keir Starmer. Ministers who knowingly mislead Parliament will be expected to offer their resignation. Does the Prime Minister believe that applies to him? 
Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, of course, but let me tell the House uh, that I think he's inviting a question about uh, an investigation which, as uh, you know, Mr Speaker, I can't uh, comment, and uh, uh, which, I, which he, is a, as a lawyer, Mr Speaker, will know that I, that I can't comment on. And what I am focused on is delivering the fastest recovery of any European... On the 8th of December, the Prime Minister told this House, I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged there was no party. So since he acknowledges the ministerial code applies to him, will he now resign? No, Mr Speaker. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson battling it out in Parliament yesterday with Labour Party leader Keir Starmer. The Partygate allegations have infuriated many in Britain who were barred from meeting with friends and family for months in 2020 and 2021 to curb the spread of COVID-19. Tens of thousands of people were fined by police for breaking the rules. And in more COVID news, our neighbor to the north, Canada, has been seeing a lot of protests. Truck drivers today determined to shut down central Ottawa, the Canadian capital, over a nationwide vaccine mandate. We're heading towards that capital from every direction. Industry officials say 90% of drivers traversing the U.S. frontier are inoculated, but a minority have refused, saying the mandate violates their personal freedom. Hundreds of truckers are due to arrive Friday and aim to park their rigs on Parliament Hill, paralyzing downtown traffic. Meanwhile, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has accused conservative politicians of fear-mongering over the mandate. And yet another Canadian is battling opponents of government mandates to take the jab against COVID. And that's Neil Young. Music streaming service Spotify has agreed to take down the music of classic rock superstar Neil Young. The rocker is protesting a popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, where last month the comedian interviewed Dr. Robert Malone, an infectious disease specialist who's become a hero in the anti-vaccine community. Young said that many of Spotify's listeners are hearing misleading information about COVID. They're young, impressionable, and easy to swing to the wrong side of the truth. Young, Neil Young, 76, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1975. He says his fans now have the chance to listen to his music in places where it'll sound better. And investigative journalists looking into the sources of vaccine disinformation say it's no surprise. Journalist Alex Koch is co-author of the report, How the Coke Network Hijacked the War on COVID. He says anti-vaccination propaganda is part of a well-funded corporate campaign. What's behind it is a libertarian pro-business agenda fueled by GOP mega donors like Charles Koch and a lot of his allies. It's really an awfully cool approach, very cynical approach to public health. These sort of corporate billionaires don't want their businesses shut down. They don't want their workers to be able to stay home and be safe. They want them risking their lives for profit in the factories and other workspaces. And unfortunately, we have you know, several doctors who have gotten on that bandwagon 
and continue to push for herd immunity a year and a half after they wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. What is that declaration? The Great Barrington Declaration was a treatise on herd immunity. They're written by three doctors and really coordinated by a think tank that has received funding from the American Economic Research Institute, which essentially brought these doctors together, hosted them for a weekend, and during that time they birthed the Great Barrington Declaration. Most sort of mainstream epidemiologists and doctors have objected to it and said the science is wrong and it's going to kill millions if not tens of millions of people but these doctors have stuck with it there are a lot of questions around the country should we lock down again should we we'd be doing sort of covid measures that we did in early to mid 2020 in the u.s that did not happen the biden administration didn't want to urge lockdowns and seemingly the white house has essentially adopted a herd immunity strategy. They're not calling for lockdowns this time. Omicron continues to surge, and they seem content to let things unravel and get people back to work even quicker. I mean, during Omicron surge, the CDC lowered the quarantine days from 10 to 5. They're saying workers can go back to work after five days if they wear a mask. These are not sound scientific strategies. Do you think that the reason they chose five days over 10 days this time was because of the Koch family or other people like that? What's going on is that you have liberals or centrists on the Democratic side who, after almost two years of COVID, are ending up in the same space as where the great Barrington folks were in 2020. I don't think that they're directly influenced by Coke or even this network. But it is disturbing that what the pro-business libertarians have been pushing since the beginning is now closer to what the Democratic White House is pushing. The Barrington folks claim that there's very nebulous and undefined policy would include extra protection for the vulnerable, but it's unclear really what that is. And as any self-respecting scientist would know, if more people are, even the healthy folks are getting the virus, that's putting the unhealthy at-risk folks with comorbidities or elderly folks more at risk, uh, no matter what you do publicly. That's what will happen here. Eventually, capitalism will come up with a reason to cu- for uh, fixing everything and everybody will be cured. That's the problem with the anti-government mindset of libertarians and a lot of the Republican Party and the right in America now is really contrary to public health and general sort of universal well-being. Alex Koch, he's the co-author of the report, How the Koch Network Hijacked the War on COVID. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day. This year falls on the anniversary of the liberation by Soviet Red Army troops of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the most notorious of the death camps, where Nazi Germany carried out its final solution, seeking the murder of the Jewish people of Europe. A small number of survivors gathered in an auditorium at Auschwitz in Poland, now a museum, and teaching the lessons of the crimes committed by fascists during World War II. Nazi German forces killed 1.1 million people at Auschwitz, most of them Jews, but also Poles, Roma, and others. The Yippie Pie Man, Aaron Kay, is famous in certain circles for tossing comedic confections against fascists, anti-LGBTQ, and other right-wingers, but he's also the child of Holocaust survivors. He spoke with WBAI today. My mother was in Auschwitz, but she was not liberated from there. She was liberated three months later from another camp in Germany. But the thing is, this should be taught everywhere for people to realize what genocide does to the human race. Even though Hitler and this are all long dead, you still got a Nazi-type genocidal philosophy still lurking in the world. Tell me about your mom's experience. My father 
was in the Polish army in 1939 when the war broke out. He and his unit were taken prisoner and held eight months in Konigsberg, Germany, working as slave laborers for Krupp. I think they made military armament for the Germans. They had factories all over the place. They released the Jews back to their community. In 1942, they came to my father's ghetto community at Minsk, Mazowiecki, Poland, which is near Warsaw, and they took everybody off to Treblinka, including five aunts, my grandparents, other family members, and a half-brother. My father and a bunch of people hid in the woods for three years in the Polish forests. My aunt was hidden by a Polish woman in a basement. Now my mother, she was living in a town called Popianice, which is near Lodz, Poland. She and my aunts got grabbed up in 44 and only did eight months in the camps, fortunately. First it was Auschwitz, then they were dragged off to Bergen-Belsen, and then they were liberated April 14th, 1945, by the U.S. 84th Infantry from a place called Salzfadel. My uncle was my mother's brother. He got grabbed in 1939 when he was 17. So he was in the camps all over the place, between Poland and Germany, for six years. When the war broke out, he hitched a ride to France, where we had an aunt there. And he stayed there for a year until he finds out that future wife and my mother and her sister were still alive. He went back to Germany to find them, this place person's camps, as a stepping stone to get out of Europe, to either you know United States, Canada, Israel, wherever they went. Did your mom and dad ever talk about these things with you? They brought it up with us a lot. They wanted us to know. I remember being 11 years old, watching the Eichmann trial with my parents. Adolf Eichmann was the engineer, the final solution, which resulted in the deaths of six million Jews and the murders of countless others. Eichmann got grabbed up by the Mossad in 1960 in Buenos Aires and brought to Israel for trial. The end result was that he was hung, cremated, they dumped his ashes in the Mediterranean. There was a connection, you think, between those times and now? They showed on CNN last night a fellow named Robert Packer, who's from Newport News, Virginia. Packer was a creep who wore the Camp Auschwitz shirt on January 6th of last year when the fascists did their invasion of the Capitol. Creeps like that don't deserve a nice day. People who doubt or deny that it was six million Jewish people who were murdered by the Nazis, you say it's some other number less than that, and come up with stories that. You know, that they, they didn't That's, look like oh, they were I'm, suffering or something like that. Garbage from the Liberty Lobby. Anybody in their right mind would not buy it. Let them make a trip to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, which has a Holocaust archive or the Holocaust Museum in D.C. They will come out of there feeling appalled by it all. Right. I took Rachel, my daughter there, at the age of 11. She was very appalled after seeing that. But it's not like a mystery. There are museums. And, and, and the Nazis kept meticulous records on everything, including movies of it, 
documentation that works. They more or less cook their own goose. Do you think there's still anti-Semitism in the world? There's plenty of it. It doesn't have to be anti-Semitism. It could be people who are anti-gay, anti-brown, anti-black, whatever. The other. Yes. And we cannot allow the hate to go on. That's Aaron Kay. He is a child of Holocaust survivors. According to the United Nations, 17% of content on the Internet related to the Holocaust that is on TikTok, a very popular source on the Internet, either denied or distorted the Holocaust. In Italy, members of the Jewish community and lawmakers gathered in Rome's ghetto to lay a wreath where more than a thousand people rounded up and deported to Auschwitz on October 16, 1943. In Albania, Foreign Minister Olta Zasha honored Holocaust victims while expressing pride in his country's role in sheltering Jews. Back here in the United States, the Federal Reserve signaled yesterday that it will begin a series of interest rate hikes in March, reversing pandemic-era policies that have fueled hiring and growth and stock market gains, but also stubbornly high inflation. Chair Jerome Powell said at a news conference that inflation had gotten slightly worse since the Fed last met in December. He said raising the Fed's benchmark rate, which has been pegged at zero since March 2020, will help prevent high prices from becoming entrenched. Labor market conditions are consistent with maximum employment in the sense of the highest level of employment that is consistent with price stability. And that is that is my personal view. And again, very broad support on the committee for the judgment that it will soon be appropriate to raise the target range for the federal funds rate. Economists said they were surprised by the likely timing and intensity of rate hikes sketched out by Powell, who said the economy is stronger now than 2015 when the Fed began to raise rates slowly. But progressive political economist Jack Rasmus says the economy is not as strong as mainstream economists say. Businesses were betting that there would be a big Christmas consumer spending rush, which there wasn't. And now, of course, you're going to see inventory accumulation really move in the opposite direction here in the first quarter of 22, which will have an opposite underestimation effect of GDP, among other factors. So that's the GDP thing. As far as the Fed, inflation is going to supply side. The problems they're finally admitted are going to uh, continue this year. So our corporations, the auto companies and so forth, they're all admitting we have a more chronic, longer-term inflation. So the Fed is responding to, you know, the pressure to uh, raise rates, except raising rates isn't going to do much for supply-side-driven inflation. It'll take some wind out of demand, which is already softening consumer spending because of inflation, slow down certain sectors of the economy, uh, rising interest rates. But it's not going to have much effect on supply-side inflation. It's reminiscent of what happened in 81, 82, when we had the oil price shock. In other words, the supply-side problem. The Fed raised interest rates to 18 percent, caused the deep recession, uh, shut down the auto and construction, sent everything into a deep uh, recession, and uh, in other words, took it out on the height of consumers' demand for what was the supply-side problem. Well, we got the same thing going on here. They're not going to be able to raise rates anywhere near what they did in 81, 82. Not, not even close. The economy has changed. It's much more fragile. We're already seeing hiccups occurring in the financial markets just on the talk of beginning to raise rates. And, you know, some of the pundits are saying five rate hikes here this year. No way. Never will happen. 
uh, it'll slow down the economy dramatically too soon, and the Fed will have to back off of that, I predict. You've got other problems with not just the stock market uh, churning at the top because of the realization of rates coming, but, you know, you've got other problems like an immunity bond market and junk bond market. Those two uh, financial markets are really having some angst here. You've got the crypto market that's crashing. There's no way that they're going to be able to raise rates very long, very fast. Are we looking at a recession coming? It's possible. Not this year, but it's possible if the Fed does raise rates too high too fast. Well, then absolutely in 2023, we will have a a correction here in the real economy, not only the financial side of the economy. And the financial side is very fragile. As I said, those markets I talked about, but then you got the property markets over in China in deep trouble. You've got emerging markets in trouble with dollarized bonds. They just cannot raise rates and precipitate a financial contraction here, which, of course, would drag down the real economy. The pressure is there on the supply side for the Fed to do something. And that's progressive political economist Jack Rasmus. The real economy he refers to is the economy that all of us face every day of our lives and going to work and what have you, as opposed to what happens in Wall Street and in the bond markets and banks, which is the unreal economy. High inflation has become a serious political threat to President Joe Biden and congressional Democrats with Republicans pointing to rising prices as one of their principal lines of attack as they look toward the November elections. And we're going to have to put off the local part of the cast because we had some problems at the beginning. So we will go on tomorrow to talk about Communities for Change and their endorsement of public advocate Jumani Williams for governor of New York. And that's some of the news for Thursday, January 27th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry with Linda Perry and our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>